Hey everyone, it is April 2021. Welcome to Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ishu, and this month we are discussing the emergency medicine practice article on rabies with the article's author, Dr. Beth Storch. And before we dive into that discussion, there are so many wonderful things coming up this month from EB Medicine that I have to take a moment to tell you about all of them. First, I want you to join me and Dr. Scott Weingart as he talks to us about traumatic hemorrhagic shock in the emergency department. That is April 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's a free course. It's one hour long, and it includes a live question and answer with Dr. Weingart himself. It costs you nothing, and the link is in the show notes. Be sure to register in advance. Second, be on the lookout in your email for an announcement from EB Medicine about a special issue of emergency medicine practice. It's titled Emergency Department Clinical Operations During a Pandemic. It is chocked full of all the lessons we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic on ED operations, on hospital operations. It covers a multitude of topics, everything from insight into patient screening, visitors and visitor screening, personal protective equipment, beginning an emergency department pandemic unit or an infection control unit, telemedicine, EMTALA and pandemic responses. I mean, it covers everything. It's an outstanding article. If you're a subscriber, it is free. And if you're not a subscriber, it'll be available for purchase at ebmedicine.net. Third, the Mount Sinai COVID-19 patient treatment protocols have received a fresh update and are all available to you at ebmedicine.net, covering the entire scope of care with real evidence-based management of patients, inpatient, outpatients. It's an outstanding summary and again, available to you at ebmedicine.net. And lastly, you may have already heard that the Clinical Decision-Making in Emergency Medicine Conference is open for registration. This year, it's being held June 23rd through the 27th in Ponta Vedra, Florida. There is both a live and a virtual option, and it's being recorded. So no excuse to miss it this year. And it's chocked full of the faculty that you're already accustomed to hearing from in the emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice articles and here interviewed on the podcast. So many great things coming to you from EB Medicine. I just can't find enough time to discuss it all. But before I forget why I'm actually here, this is going to be a great discussion with Dr. Storch about rabies. So without any further ado, here's Dr. Storch. So my name is Dr. Beth Storch. I'm an attending physician at Mount Sinai West and Mount Sinai Morningside Hospitals in New York City. Thank you for joining us today to talk to us about your emergency medicine practice article on rabies. It's actually a very timely topic. I was just talking with one of my partners about this the other day, and I'm happy to say you did an outstanding job with the article. Thank you very much for writing it. Uh, Today, we're going to run through some of the highlights, uh, and before we dive into the meat of what is rabies, how about you tell us why you picked the subject or why it's important to us, even if we're practicing in the United States? Sure. Um, So rabies is a topic that I have a particular interest in. 
rabies has a fatality rate of over 99%. Uh, when someone's diagnosed with rabies, death is practically inevitable. Um, and it is a relevant topic for us. There was a recent survey of uh, licensed physicians in the United States, and including emergency providers, and they found that less than half of them could really identify the rabies transmission routes, um, the correct schedule of how prophylaxis is administered. Um, so it's something that not uh, many people are really that familiar with or comfortable with. Yeah, I think my closest encounter with rabies was when we traveled to Guatemala on a medical mission trip where they apparently have lots of feral dogs. And I did not do that research in advance and was not aware. And when we got there and the city was filled with feral dogs, I thought, huh, what are the chances that there is some hospital anywhere within 12 hours of us that actually has uh, rabies treatment options? Uh, thankfully, nobody on the trip got bitten by a dog. But does this question come up a lot for people who are traveling to other countries? It definitely does. So people who have traveled to other countries who are either planning to travel or who have returned from travel um, will often go to a travel medicine clinic, but will often come to an emergency room. Um, and I've definitely seen patients come in having had an exposure and um, feel unsure whether they should receive vaccination after that exposure. Um, so it's something that we see often. Now, thankfully, the disease itself is not something we see very frequently. I don't think I realized the fatality rate was actually that high. So 99%, it's basically universally fatal if you contract the actual disease. That's correct. And most of cases, um, you know, it's very rare in the United States and in Canada, um, but most cases are in countries where resources are very limited. Um, and one third of cases are found just in India alone. Unfortunately, half of all rabies cases occur in children. Hmm. So it's, and it's really considered a scourge of the developing world. Wow. That is just terrible. Uh, it, now, the, the disease itself is caused by a virus. That's right. So rabies is an RNA virus. Um, it's in the genus called Lissa viruses. They travel um, almost exclusively from host to host through saliva of infected mammals. And then it's transmitted to us, the non-native host uh, human beings, by some kind of animal bite. Is that right? That's right. So the most common, by far the most common um, route of transmission is exposure of broken skin to saliva from an infected mammal. Uh, and that can really range from big, deep bites, like from a dog, um, to even very small pinpoint sized, um, nearly not visible to the human eye bites, like from a bat. Um, there are other rare reported modes of transmission, including several case reports of transmission from organ transplants, and as well as it's believed that it can travel via aerosolization, so aerosolization of the virus particles in caves where there's millions of bats, as well as cases in um, rabies laboratories. And when there is exposure to the virus, the virus then eventually makes its way up to the brain, which is how it becomes fatal. Is that right? That's right. So when the infected saliva contacts the broken skin, the virus then can enter the muscle tissue 
And when the virus is in the muscle, it enters the neuromuscular junction where it can then enter peripheral nerves. Um, once the virus is in the peripheral nerves, it gets transported retrogradely up axons into the central nervous system. Um, when it reaches the dorsal root ganglia in the nervous system, it causes inflammation there and can actually cause neuropathic symptoms like burning, pain, paresthesias um, in that affected dermatome. The virus then can continue um, retrograde up and reaches the brain. And then once it re reaches the brain, it replicates there and then can spread diffusely throughout the body, really to all organ systems, um, and most notably to the salivary glands, where it can then infect subsequent hosts. After someone then contracts rabies, which is hopefully something we will never see, but in the rare chance that this actually happens, there is a clinical progression through multiple stages. Tell us more about what this looks like in a human being. So there are five stages of rabies, uh, including the incubation phase, the prodrome, an acute neurologic phase, coma, and death. The incubation period on average is one to three months, but there are reported incubation periods ranging from as few as five days in a case where a dog, uh, a dog bit uh, directly into a person's brachial plexus um, to incubation periods as long as eight years or more. Um, the incubation period then is followed by a prodrome phase, and that's really nonspecific symptoms like fever, headache, nausea. Um, or it can be more localized with those neuropathic symptoms in the exposed limb, like I described. <clears throat> Next comes the acute neurologic phase, and that comes in two forms. There's an encephalitic or furious rabies, and that's in about 80% of cases. And that's characterized by fluctuating levels of consciousness with agitation, hyperexcitability, hyperactivity, alternating with periods uh, where the patient is mentally lucid. And then what's really uh, highly specific for rabies is the hydrophobia and the aerophobia, which are painful laryngeal and pharyngeal spasms uh, with involuntary gagging, which occurs in the response to the sight or the sound of water or to offering the patient water um, or fanning drafts of air onto the patient. And then paralytic or dumb rabies constitutes about 20% of cases. And that's with para paralysis of the bitten limb, which can progress to quadriplegia, to incontinence, and then later to diaphragmatic and bulbar paralysis. And mentation remains intact during all of that. And that can actually be easily confused with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And lastly is the progression to coma and death, which occurs within one to two weeks from the initiation of symptoms. And that's really ne nearly inevitable. Wow. Now, if you're accustomed to watching old Westerns or movies where they show feral dogs who have contracted rabies, they're always agitated, angry, drooling, uh, acting erratically. And in humans, it sounds like eventually we get to that point. I did not realize uh, that aerophobia or that kind of um, irritation and avoidance of air blowing in your face or, or the fact that you get symptoms when air is blown in your face is something that can occur with rabies. I had heard of the hydrophobia, which has always struck me as kind of a bizarre symptom. But even in the early stages of clinical rabies, there is almost a universally fatal outcome. Is that right? So once you start to demonstrate symptoms, you're basically down this path that is very, very difficult to alter? That's correct. Once the prodrome symptoms come on, 
at that point, the virus has already spread uh, diffusely throughout the central nervous system, and death would be inevitable at that point. Recovery is extremely rare. There are case reports of recovery, but in those rare cases, there's often very profound neurologic sequelae. And that's really the crux of why we are so rabies paranoid when it comes to exposures to animals and work-related exposure or travel-related exposure. It's because we can prevent the disease, but we can't really treat the disease. Once you have it, you're going to die from it. That's right. And with vaccination, um, prevention of the disease is 100% effective. That's a pretty rare situation, really. I can't think of many diseases where we have uh, almost nothing to actually combat the disease, but the vaccination is 100% effective in preventing it. That's that's an interesting situation. Uh, So if that's the case, why not just vaccinate everyone in the entire world for rabies? Sure, that's a good question. Um, So the CDC really only recommends vaccination for those who are at a continuous or a frequent risk of rabies exposure, uh, because exposure is still quite rare. Uh, In the US and Canada, that really includes those who work in rabies research or diagnostic laboratories or facilities where they're producing rabies vaccines. Um, Others that really require uh, vaccination are veterinarians, veterinary staff, any animal control or wildlife officers, um, spelunkers who are in caves and exposed to bats, um, and anyone who frequently handles bats um, because of their occupation. In terms of those who are traveling internationally, vaccination is recommended uh, if there's travel to areas where rabies is highly endemic with plans to engage in any high-risk activities. And that includes spending extensive time outdoors um, in rural areas, if the person will be handling animals, exposed to dogs, um, and any place where post-exposure prophylaxis is limited, which is places where, uh, you know, very rural areas or under-resourced areas. The CDC website does provide a list of countries where canine rabies is highly endemic, and that can come in useful when making that decision of whether someone should be prophylaxed. So if you're taking part in any of those high-risk activities, the spelunking, the if you have bats for pets, or if you're handling bats frequently, that's a that's an easy recommendation. You're going to need to be vaccinated before you participate in those activities. And if you're going to travel, then you really need to check that CDC website. It's not one of the vaccines we typically think about. You know, we think about things like yellow fever, uh, tropical diseases, even. We don't usually think about rabies. But in the U.S. and Canada, we've managed to kind of beat down rabies with mandatory vaccines for dogs and pets, which hasn't really been the case in third world countries. So I definitely recommend if you're going to be traveling to check that CDC website and look at the status of the country where you're going, uh, because if it is one of those countries, it seems very unlikely you're going to have access to the vaccine anyway. And it's definitely something worth talking with your physician about. Now, there are some medical history details that are important when you're talking to someone who might have had an exposure. That's right. So In any patient who is uh, presenting to receive the vaccination, um, either prior to travel or prior to high-risk activity, or someone who comes in after a potential exposure, 
um, a couple of things in their medical history are very important, namely whether the patient has any immunocompromising illness or if they're on any immunosuppressive medications, including steroids, that alters the vaccination course. Um, also important, and this is especially relevant in travelers, is whether the patient is on um, the anti-malarial drug chloroquine. Chloroquine can actually interfere with the vaccine, uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine, um, and cannot be given in conjunction with the vaccine. So that's another important question to ask. Hmm. Yeah, that's very important because the countries where you're going with malaria exposure are going to be those third world countries where you're not likely to have access to rabies immunization if you have some kind of exposure anyway. So good to know that there's an interaction between those medications. Now, we talked about feral dogs, but what are the animals here in the United States and in Canada that would present a high-risk scenario? Wild mammals in the United States and in Canada, including raccoons, foxes, skunks, coyotes, um, and then particularly bats are the animals considered high risk. Um, these are the animals in which rabies is endemic. Bites from these animals or any type of contact of that animal's saliva to any mucous membranes, those would all warrant uh, post-exposure vaccination. So contact with bats is actually um, worthy of discussing a little bit more. Um, Contact with bats can actually occur without any obvious bites or scratches seen on the person. Um, in a series of rabies cases in the U.S. from the last three decades, only 17% of rabies cases in humans that are known to come from bats actually had only 17% had known bat bites. And over 40% of human rabies cases from bats had no known history of bat exposure. Um, so any contact with a bat is considered worthy of receiving post-exposure vaccination. That includes having any bat scratches, having a bat crawl or land on a person, anyone who's handled bats, or anyone who is, was sleeping in a room and then awoke to, found, to find a bat in that room, all of those people warrant vaccination. Now, that's an interesting point. So if you're even in the same room where you woke up and found a bat, you should be vaccinated. Is that because the thought is that you might have had a small dermal exposure and just not know it? Or can the disease actually be passed through the air through aerosol? It's more that there would have been a small exposure, like a tiny scratch or tiny bite um, that went unknown. Perfect. Now, I didn't hear any rodents in that list of worrisome animals. So uh, what if people are exposed to mice or rats or squirrels and chipmunks and all kinds of other wildlife? Are those, are, those are not concerning exposures? No. So rodents have never been known to transmit rabies to humans, and uh, contact with rodents is considered extremely low risk for rabies transmission. Well, that's good news for my children. <laughs> uh, now, once we see someone in the emergency department who comes in for an exposure, obviously we're going to ask them the details of the exposure. We want to know what kind of animal it was. We want to ask about the behavior of the animal. And then we always ask about whether or not the person still has access to this animal. Why does that matter? 
So if it was a wild animal exposure and the animal could be captured and euthanized, um, it can be sent to the state or local health department for testing. And if testing can be done expeditiously uh, within a few days, that person may not necessarily require post-exposure vaccination and they can wait until that result is available. If the animal is a domestic animal, a dog, a cat, or a ferret, um, if that animal is available, it should be confined and observed for 10 days. And the idea is that if that animal remains healthy during that time, it would not have been infectious at the time of the bite and post-exposure prophylaxis um, can be avoided in that situation as well. Good. So that means in the typical scenario where there's been a possible exposure, it's not a one-hour emergency where I have to rush to find some, some vaccine to administer and some rabies IG that I've got to administer immediately right now. We may actually have some time to examine animals or quarantine pets before a decision is made. Is that right? That's right. And uh, post-exposure vaccination is recommended to be done expeditiously in an urgent but not an emergent way. And if an animal is sent for testing, the first dose of post-exposure prophylaxis can be given. And then when the results come back, the the vaccination course can be discontinued safely if that animal tests negative. Gotcha. And before we get into the, the treatment regimen, when we're seeing this person in the emergency department, either because of an exposure or even because possibly worrisome symptoms of rabies, we always want to order some tests. We want to do some imaging. There's got to be some kind of picture we can obtain. Is there any role for any diagnostic testing while they're in the emergency department? So for patients who present after a possible rabies exposure, there are really no labs or imaging um, that can be done uh, during that time. Uh, there's no diagnostic tests um, that occur during the incubation period. Um, for patients who present where there's a suspicion for clinical rabies, um, our routine laboratory tests are non-diagnostic. A lumbar puncture may reveal some mild pleocytosis and maybe a mild elevation in CSF protein, but it's otherwise nonspecific. Um, and other routine labs are nonspecific. But the gold standard diagnostic test uh, for rabies is a hemi-nested reverse transcriptase PCR, which is done on a skin biopsy taken at the nape of the neck, and at least three saliva samples. Um, these tests are really only performed in consultation with your state health department, and they help facilitate submission of all those samples to the rabies laboratory at the CDC. In terms of imaging, um, Head CT is nonspecific. Um, it should be used to rule out other etiologies of encephalitis. And MRI features can be very variable. Uh, you can have signal intensity abnormalities in the spinal cord or the spinal nerve roots during that prodrome phase with the neuropathic symptoms that we discussed. Um, and then later on into the comatose phase, you can see diffuse enhancement of the brain um, as the blood-brain barrier breaks down. And the treatment regimen, once we have seen someone for an exposure and perhaps consulted with our local animal control or with someone at the CDC hotline or someone at the state level and decided, yes, this person needs post-exposure prophylaxis for rabies, what does that entail exactly? 
So for those who are previously unvaccinated, the post-exposure prophylaxis consists of active immunization with the rabies vaccine combined with passive immunization with human rabies immune globulin, or HRIG. Rabies vaccination um, induces the development of antibodies, but those take about seven to 10 days to develop. And so that passive immunization with the rabies immune globulin covers that gap period until the body can produce active immunity. And that rabies Ig that we're giving is going into the wound, if there's a wound, uh, primarily with the remainder going elsewhere. Is that right? That's correct. So the immune globulin, you would inject as much as you can directly into the wound or wounds if there's more than one. And with any remaining dose, you would give that intramuscularly at a site uh, distant from the vaccine. And that's an important point. Um, is that your first dose of vaccine is given on day zero along with the first with the dose of immune globulin, and those have to be given separately. Um, if they're given in the same syringe or into the same extremity, they can interfere with each other. So let's say, for example, I have someone who was bitten by a fox in their left hand, and they only have one or two wounds, but they're all in the left hand. So all of that Ig is going into those wounds and maybe the remainder into that left upper extremity. And then the vaccination is going to be given in the right arm. So it's in a different extremity away from where I injected the Ig. That's correct. And with subsequent vaccines, um, which are given on later dates according to the regimen, they can be given in either extremity. It's just that first vaccine on day zero that's given concurrently with the immune globulin that they have to be given at distant sites. And in someone who is not previously vaccinated, how many more injections are we talking about down the line to complete the series for the vaccination? So there are four shots total um, given on day zero, three, seven, and 14. And if the patient is immunosuppressed, as we discussed with an immunosuppressed condition on any immunosuppressive medications, including steroids, they would get a fifth dose of vaccine on day 28 as well. And then if they are a worker who works at a veterinary clinic or they've been previously vaccinated for some reason, how does the treatment regimen change in that scenario? So in the previously vaccinated patient, Passive immunization with rabies immune globulin is unnecessary and actually can interfere with the host's immune response. So rabies immune globulin is not given in the previously vaccinated. They only require vaccine on day zero and day three. Oh, good. So just a two injection series in that case. That's right. But still, you have to give the series. So if you're a veterinary worker exposed to an animal or exposed for some other reason, you can't just rely on your previous vaccination and say, I'm good. You still need at least two doses in that scenario. That's correct. And so anyone who's been previously vaccinated, um, whether they're a worker in the U.S. or whether it's an international traveler, um, they need to be informed that they still require post-exposure prophylaxis with two doses of vaccine. And those two doses given day zero, like the day that you see them, and then day three you said, is that right? That's correct. Okay, great. 
Now, you mentioned in your article some special populations. Let's start with children. Is there anything we would alter in this regimen or in the required treatment for a child? There's not really. Uh, Rabies immune globulin and rabies vaccine have demonstrated safety in the pediatric population, and they receive the same doses and according to the same schedules as adults do. Fantastic. Now, you also spent some time talking about pregnant women. Any changes there? There are not. So the vaccine has also demonstrated safety in the pregnant population um, with uh, with no increased risk to the pregnancy. Um, and the doses of the rabies immune globulin and the vaccine are also the same. And then for someone who has recently traveled and maybe isn't seeing us on day zero, uh, any alterations to the schedule there? There's also not. So um, the rabies vaccination post-exposure should continue as recommended by the CDC guidelines. Um, It is important to note that some returning travelers who have had a possible rabies exposure may have received some form of post-exposure prophylaxis uh, in the country where they were traveling. It's important to ask what these are and then to look them up on the CDC website because often these biologics um, that are not used in the U.S. or Canada are not FDA approved. And oftentimes they use less potent biologics or don't add rabies immune globulin. So it's important to ask what they received because even if they receive some form of post-exposure prophylaxis outside the U.S., they may still warrant a round of vaccinations upon return. I see. So in that case, they may have received something outside the U.S. They may not qualify for the human rabies IG while they're in the emergency department, but we still have to proceed through the vaccine series as though they were unvaccinated, or if they were previously vaccinated, they still need two doses, just like everybody else. That's right. Great. Well, at least that makes me feel better about rabies in general. Uh, Again, I'm not a big fan of the fatality rate, and so hopefully in my career, I'm never going to see a case, a clinical case of rabies, but it is comforting to know that the vaccinations are so efficacious and really not all that complicated. We're given rabies IG, we're given a vaccine, and then we're scheduling them to return after we've consulted with our state or local animal control uh, or Department of Health so that we can uh, get the doses scheduled and make sure we're giving it appropriately. There's always some anxiety in these scenarios where people are worried that they've been exposed because they've been bitten by something. So it sounds like history is going to be 90% of the work there trying to figure out what kind of animal was it, what the behavior was of the animal, what the surrounding scenario was during the time of the exposure, uh, and whether or not this animal was captured. Hopefully, animal control can help with that. Uh, And then just providing the required medication. That seems pretty straightforward and far less complicated than I was expecting. So thanks again for taking the time to write the article uh, and to join us on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about the topic. If you're a subscriber, there is an excellent table in the article that will give you the details on dosing for post-exposure prophylaxis, and all of the links are included there for the CDC website where you can look up countries 
Uh, and again, don't forget to contact your local animal control or Department of Health for local resources and help in making that decision so that you're never really alone in trying to make this decision when it comes to treating a patient or deciding if there's been a legitimate exposure. And above all, it seems bats would be the most concerning type of exposure. Don't have to have a wound and definitely don't have to have any kind of dermatologic findings in order to start therapy there, which just sounds like is going to be universal if there was a bat involved. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks again to Dr. Storch for the outstanding article and for joining us on the podcast. Before we close, I want to remind you about those four fantastic things coming up from EB Medicine. First, the live course on traumatic hemorrhage in the ED with Dr. Weingart with the free registration link in the show notes. Second, the upcoming article on pandemic preparedness. Third, the published COVID protocols with the recent update online at ebmedicine.net. And lastly, clinical decision-making in the emergency department, June 23rd through the 27th. I hope I see you there at Ponte Vedra on the beach. It'll be wonderful. Looking forward to it. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Machine.